Well, this is the time of year where Christmas gift buying is happening. And uh, nowadays, what that means is that your Google, YouTube, and social media feeds are filled with ads that online marketers think would be of interest to you. Um, and so being a guy, and also a guy in my 40s, um, one of the ads that the uh, powers that be in the interwebs have felt like I need to see quite a bit uh, is an ad for these, True Classic Tees. I don't know if any of you have seen these before. Probably guys have seen them in their feeds more than you ladies. But the idea behind a true classic tee is that it is cut just right so that it's tight around the arms and around the torso with, at the same time, leaving just, you know, a little bit of extra room around the midsection. Or, as one ad said, this is the perfect gift for that man in your life who's been blessed with a dad bod. <laughs> if you don't know what a dad bod is, you can Google it on your own time. But I guess one question I had is, I don't know how to feel about this, uh, that I'm getting all of these ads. Should I be thankful that someone's looking out for me? Or should I feel a little bit embarrassed uh, that I'm getting these ads? Or how about this? Um, if someone got me a true classic tea for Christmas, how should I feel about that? There's so many things I don't know. <laughs> but here's one thing I do know, is that this is just one example of a whole bunch of different apparel items for guys and for gals that have the idea, that have the purpose of making you look good, of hiding things that maybe you're embarrassed about or maybe unflattering and to help you look even maybe better than you should. You know what wouldn't sell very well? A t-shirt that makes your arms look small and your stomach big, right? This is true about all of us. We'd prefer to emphasize the good and to hide the bad. And that's true with our bodies. That's true with our resumes. That's true with our social media accounts. And in many ways, there's nothing even wrong with this. It's just a thing. It's just something. It's the way that we feel. But here's the reality that when it's the opposite, when someone intentionally highlights the bad or the embarrassing, like a t-shirt that makes your stomach look big, um, that catches your attention. And in a weird way, that's exactly what Matthew did when he wrote the genealogy of Jesus at the beginning of his gospel. He emphasized things that were embarrassing about Jesus' family line or things that you and I might consider to be, to be bad. And I'd like to review a little bit of that with you from last week because I know a lot goes on in a week and you, you might have forgotten some of these things, so I'm going to remind you. When Matthew began his account of Christmas, he didn't start with shepherds and mangers and stables. He started with a genealogy. And the reason why he did this, in part, was because his first audience, his primary audience to begin, were some Jewish people. And if you were a Jew 2,000 years ago, you would have known, without a doubt, 
that if someone was going to claim to be the Messiah, that he had to be from a particular family. And there were two key people in that family that the Old Testament talked a lot about, that he would be the son or grandson of Father Abraham, and he would be the son or grandson of King David. And so Matthew goes about showing how Jesus was an ancestor of both of these important people. But as he goes through the genealogy, he kind of goes off script a little bit because a typical genealogy would say, this is the father of this person and this person's the father of that person. And it was very patriarchal. Family trees still often are that way, right? But there's these little points in Matthew's genealogy where he specifically points out a person or an event that you wonder, why did you do that? Why did you point that out? And what we had is our first fill-in last week because it's kind of a a core idea for this series is going to be our first fill-in for this week as well. The reason why Matthew did this was because the kind of people that Jesus came from The people that we're going to look at in this unexpected lineage of Jesus are the same kind of people for whom Jesus came. And here's why this is important. You see, the Jews at the time, um, they had mistakenly sort of transferred all of their focus on their relationship with God on the things that they did. And yes, God had given lots of laws in the Old Testament, but they were never meant to be the way to get into a good relationship with God. They were meant to point ahead to the person who would get them into a good relationship with God. And so their mindset so often was the way to be good with God is by being good and doing the right thing. And yet, you and I know that just doesn't work. Because what God requires is not good. He requires perfect, and none of us are that way. The reality is, the reality that Matthew wanted to point the people back to, the reality of Jesus is that we get into a good relationship with God by God's grace and what Jesus has done. And it's interesting, when you see some of these people, last week we talked about Tamar, and Judah, and his family. And if you didn't blush just a little bit, you probably weren't listening. The things that happened in Jesus' family are surprising. And I think what Matthew, in part, wants us to understand is that if they are a part of Jesus' family, there's also hope for you. If those ancestors were a part of Jesus' family, that God said, hey, you're a part of my family, well, then there's hope for me. There's hope for all of us. And so let's read the first five verses once again of Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. It's in Matthew chapter one. Here's how it goes. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, also the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, looked at that last week, Perez the father of Hezron, 
Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And when the Jews would have heard that name, they would have understood, they would have realized that typically there was a label attached to that name. And they would have gasped that Matthew would have chosen to make mention of Rahab. Like I said, she, she had a label. And this is not totally uncommon in the Bible that people had labels. In fact, I thought it might be fun to kind of test your Bible history knowledge a little bit and see if you can uh, figure out these, these labels. <clears throat> so what fills in the blank here? John the... You got it. And it's, it's not like where he attended church, like Ben the Lutheran. It's, uh, he was a baptizer, John the Baptist, all right? Um, Matthew the... Yes, you got it. Very good. Guys, you know your Bible history. Okay, here's another one. Little bit harder. Herod the... See, this is last night where we kind of diverted as well, hearing different answers. He was a king, but he was known as Herod the Great. This is the one I thought would be the hardest, but last night they, they got it right away. Let's see if you guys are as smart. How about this one? Uriah the... I heard it. I heard it. Uriah the Hittite. That's where he was from. We're going to actually talk about Uriah later in the series. Rahab had a label. Rahab the, you got it. Rahab the prostitute. Can you believe that? Right in the middle of Jesus' genealogy, Matthew takes time to make sure that no one misses that the mother of Boaz was Rahab, the prostitute. Here's the reality. The kind of people Jesus came from are the kind of people that Jesus came for. Let me tell you a little bit more about Rahab's story. So it was about uh, 1400 B.C., and the children of Israel, they had just uh, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and they were about to hopefully inhabit the promised land near the Mediterranean Sea. And as they were heading that direction, they were on the other side of the Jordan River, and one little problem, there were people living in Israel, and they didn't want to give up the land. So... Joshua, who was the leader at that time, Moses had passed the leadership on to, to Joshua. They come to one of the important cities along the border named Jericho. And Joshua sends in uh, two of his men, two spies, uh, to check things out and to kind of see what they're up against. And so they go, they spy out Jericho a little bit. They figure out that they need to take some cover, and so they end up finding cover in the home of Rahab, which think about that. Rahab the prostitute, two men find cover there. It sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? But 
honestly, it was quite smart. There's two reasons why. One is that we find out that Rahab's home was right along the wall, so easy to get away. Number two, Rahab was a professional in hiding men in her home and not letting anyone find out. So she kind of knew probably how to hide them. Well, before they get to Rahab's home, a couple townies in Jericho saw these outsiders and reported it to the king. The king of Jericho sends two soldiers to Rahab's home to find these two intruders, these two foreigners. Rahab opens the door and says, yes, they were here. I didn't know they were spies and they've left. In fact, they left town before the doors of the wall were closed for the evening. So the soldiers left They left town, they chase after um, these two men. The only thing is they hadn't left. In fact, Rahab was hiding them on her roof. We read about that in Joshua chapter two. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land, uh, the land that she lived in, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, the Canaanites, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Now, one thing I want to point out here is the word in yellow. Some of you already know this, but I think when we come to it, this is just a good thing as you're reading your Bible on your own. Anytime in the English translation that you see LORD in all caps like it is there, that is a very clear reference to something that's going on in the original Hebrew text. Every time Lord is in all capitals, it means that in the Hebrew, in the original, the word there was, we say Yahweh, but it was the proper name of God. It wasn't just a God, it designated the God, the God of the Bible. And so already right here, we see Rahab not just having some compassion for two guys that were spying out the land. We see in her, as she uses Yahweh, the writer, which was probably Joshua, indicating that there was something going on in her heart as well when it came to her view of Yahweh, the true God, being her God. It's kind of interesting. Sometimes we get more information about where a person's heart was at by reading some things in the New Testament. And the writer to the Hebrews writes this in Hebrews chapter 11 about Rahab. By faith, faith in God, trust in the Lord, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. So Rahab has heard about this Yahweh. We start to see the beginnings of some faith in this Yahweh. Uh, Verse 10 continues. She's still talking with the two spies on her roof. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt 40 years earlier and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For, and we see her faith again, for the Lord your God is God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Next verse. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. 
Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Next verse. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so that the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. And the men did what Rahab said. And eventually they made it back to their Israelite camp and were safe. What happened next is a pretty famous battle. In fact, if you went to Sunday school, you probably sang a song about it um, at times, a little catchy tune, but it was called the, the Battle of Jericho. You know, Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho, Jericho. I'm not going to sing, but that's, that's the little tune. And in this battle, the most ridiculous thing happened. Instead of the army being told to march into the city and to win, God instead told the soldiers, the army, to march not into the city, but around the city. One time a day for six days, and then on the seventh day, they were supposed to get up early and do it seven times. And then at the end of it, after the seventh time, what do they do? Then we want you to blow trumpets. And God said, the walls will fall. And that's exactly what happened. The walls came tumbling down. And amidst the chaos that was happening as the walls just imploded, the Israelite army was able to march in to take Jericho. And eventually, God gave them the entire land just as he had promised so what happened to Rahab, who had saved those spies? Joshua 6. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young man who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Next verse. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron in the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua, God, spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And at the time of this writing, she lives among the Israelites to this day. And so Rahab lived among the Israelites. And then one day, she bumped into a man named Salmon. She had heard he was a great catch. And she spent some time getting to to know him, and eventually, eventually they got married, and they had a son, and his name was Boaz. 
Matthew 1. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. I get goosebumps. Because God chose a woman, a family that wasn't wealthy, that didn't have her act all together, that wasn't the, the perfect, tidy little background in life, and used her to be the mother of the greatest king in Israel's history. And get this, the 20th great-grandmother of the savior of the world, Jesus. Now, as you think about that, it should amaze all of us. And it's a, a great story. It's awesome to see God's grace and his love. But you might be asking, what does that have to do with me? It has everything to do with us. Because Rahab's story is our story. We've all been given labels. For some of us, <clears throat> we received labels from our parents early on. And, and maybe they weren't exactly, you know, Ben the loved, but we felt certain things from our parents. Maybe it was loved. Maybe it was uh, smart. Maybe that was the label. Maybe it's beautiful. Uh, for others of us, Actually, there were some difficult labels that we received from our parents. Again, maybe they never said it, but we felt it. Disappointment, <clears throat> underachiever, troublemaker. And some of those labels hurt. And for some of you, you're still carrying them. And then we get to middle school and high school. Man, it's all about labels, isn't it? What you do, how you look, who you hang out with. That's why most of us would not want to relive those years, right? It's because of the labels that so easily get put on us. You remember Rahab's label? I want to dig deep here a little bit with you. It might be a little uncomfortable. But if you were to be honest with yourself and think about what sin label would go behind your name. What would it be? You know, Rahab's known as the prostitute. Everyone knows about her sin. If, if we just, you know, between us and God right now thought about what would, what would our label be, that sin label that we struggle against, that we work against, maybe it's, you know, fill in your name, the greedy. We, we're never satisfied with what we have. I'm always fighting against that. I'm always needing more to be happy. Or maybe it's fill in your name, the addict. There's just these vices that I can't seem to shake and I'm continually battling against them. Or maybe it's your name, the unfaithful, that I've made promises and I haven't kept them. And sometimes maybe it was even to my spouse or the unforgiving there's someone in my life that I need to forgive. Whatever it is, I don't know what's in me, but it's been so hard. I'm just, 
I'm Ben the Unforgiving. Maybe it's the angry. If things don't go my way, and even when they do, I just, I get mad all the time. And the people around me are in pins and needles, and I know it. Or maybe it's the self-righteous. There's this pride in me that makes life all about me and my success and what I want. Or maybe it's the worldly. I don't think enough about heaven and about what's really important. I'm all about this world and my success. Um, Or maybe it's the worrier. I stay up late and I'm worrying all the time and I know I shouldn't, but I do. What label, what sin label do you fight against? You know what makes these labels even worse? Here's what. It might be a label that you've given to yourself. I don't know anyone that openly calls me Ben the (laughs) self-righteous, but I know sometimes I can struggle with pride. And maybe for some of you, You have found the ability to love other people, but when you look in the mirror, you haven't found the ability to love yourself. You found the ability to forgive other people, for some of you, but when you look in the mirror, you have been unable to forgive yourself. It might be a label that you've given to yourself. Now, here's one thing I want you to know. Not every label that you've heard or received should be labels that you live with and intentionalize. Because there are such things as illegitimate labels. You know, as I was preparing for today, of course, I spent some time thinking about, of course, how all of this corresponds with with Jesus and his life and labels that he might have had. Um, Jesus, he had labels. Um, His label from his mom was son, The label that his disciples gave him was rabbi. Um, John the Baptist, he gave him the label, the Lamb of God. But do you know, did you know that Jesus had illegitimate labels that were put on him? One time he went home to Nazareth to preach in the synagogue. He read from Isaiah, said, I am the guy talked about in Isaiah and no one believed him. They labeled him a liar. And then as people watched him, especially those who were the elite, they noticed he had pretty much nothing from a worldly perspective. And Jesus often was labeled as being a poor peasant. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, um, they labeled Jesus as a problem, a problem they wanted to get rid of. And then in Jesus' last hours of his life, he had a few labels coming his way. As the Roman soldiers dressed him up in a crown of thorns and um, a purple robe and made fun of him, they labeled him as being delusional. You're a king? What kind of king are you? And as many around watched him die on a cross, most labeled him as defeated. Just because you've been given a label doesn't mean that's who you are. And on the third day, this defeated Jesus rose victoriously from the dead 
and proved who he really was. The son of God, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the savior, the redeemer. He defeated death and hell and the devil. And number three, when Jesus proved his identity, he made a way for you to have a new identity as well. What's that identity? We talk a lot about identity here because the biggest, I think one of the biggest things for you to remember, to come back to that centers you is who you are. Today, I want to talk about it this way. When the New Testament writers wrote their letters to Christians who had issues in different places like Corinth and Thessalonica and Galatia and Ephesus, do you know how they never started their letters? This way. Dear dirty, horrible sinners. Dear prostitutes and tax collectors. Dear people who don't have a chance. Were they sinners? They had sin in their lives. They had issues. That's why the letters were written. But Paul and others start their letters with things like this. Dear saints, dear holy ones, that's what a saint is. Dear brothers and sisters, because they had no sin? No. But because sin was in their life. But that's not who they were. Hear me. You're not an addict. You're a child of God who deals with addiction. You're not depressed. You're a saint who deals with depression. You're not a worrier. It's not who you are. You're a holy one, redeemed by Christ. That's who you are. And you struggle with worry, and you need to keep fighting against it. You're not the unforgiving. You're a child of God who's been having difficulty forgiving and needs to keep working on it. The greed and the lust and the self-righteousness and on and on, those are not who you are. Because of what Christ did on the cross, he's established your identity. Number four, you are not defined by your sin. Rahab wasn't either. You are defined by Christ. At North Cross, um, we're not afraid to talk about sin. We're not afraid to confront the ugly in our lives. In fact, we need to. We need to talk about those things. We need to confront them in our hearts and in our minds. And, and then we get to return to the loving Lord who's washed them, those sins, all away and given you a brand new identity. As we close, one of the things I've, I've thought about 
when we get to heaven is the opportunity to um, meet some of these people in the Bible that we read about. And I want you to play along with me because I don't think it's going to be this way. But sometimes I imagine it being kind of like, you know, one of those Hollywood tour bus things where you kind of get on the bus and there's this tour guide and he kind of takes you around heaven. He's like, hey, yeah, that's where Abraham lives. That's where David lives over there. Oh, yeah, he's out, you know, watering his lawn, David. Um, there's Paul's house and that's where, that's where Peter lives. What if... What if you're on that tour bus and you ask the uh, driver, hey, um, you know, years ago, uh, back at North Cross, uh, we had this, this sermon by our pastor and he talked about um, Rahab. Um, do you think you could take us by uh, Rahab, the prostitute's house? And he's like, what? Not, yeah, Rahab, the prostitute's house. He's like, why are you whispering? Well, you know, I don't know that I can say prostitute in heaven. Oh, you can say it. You know, you shouldn't do it in heaven, right? You can't do it, but you can, you can say the word. It's, it's, it's okay. Oh, anyway, I, the bus driver continues, I, I don't know any Rahab the prostitute. It's like, man, I thought for sure she'd be in heaven. I mean... In Ben's sermon, he talked about how she had faith. I, th- I thought she'd be here. He's like, Rahab the prostitute, you know from Jericho? Oh, Rahab from Jericho. She lives here. But we don't call people in heaven by what they've done. We don't call people by the labels that they've been given by their sin. We don't call people in heaven by their sin. So I don't know who Rahab the prostitute is, but I know who Rahab the righteous is. I know who Rahab the child of God is. I can show you where she lives. You are what Jesus says you are. Not even what your parents say you are. Not what your peers tell you. Not what your sin says you are. You are what Jesus says you are. You are his child. And let's live in the joy of that. Let's pray. Dear Lord, um, I know a message like this can hit different people in big ways because there are some people here today that have been living with a label that whether it's other people that have said it or just a label they have on themselves that has been dragging them down and making them unable even maybe to look in the mirror. And Lord, I just pray that you take that away, that you would use this this truth of your grace to to help us slowly but surely to recognize who we really are, that you loved Rahab the prostitute so much that she even was the 20 greats grandmother of your son. And that same grace and forgiveness and love and hope is ours. And I I pray that we live in that grace, that we don't stay in our sin, that we work towards something different, but that already today we live in the joy and the newness of forgiveness through Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.